As Richard Ramirez is led to prison on that November day, he has one final comment for the media. Big deal. That's always went with the territories. I'll see you in Disneyland. Instead, Richard Ramirez went to San Quentin prison. His strange story continues. Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Good to be with you again, folks, as we come to you live this evening. Actually, this is going to be a recording when you hear it, but we're coming at you again <laughs> to bring you another installment of our True Crime series, a new series that we've tackled in the last two years. And so tonight we're going to be talking about. Major Monster, Richard Ramirez. And what film are we covering, Professor? Manhunt, The Search for the Night Stalker. Manhunt. TV Man- movie, 1989. Another made-for-TV movie in the serial killer uh, uh, world. So, I just want to start here from the top. That Richard Ramirez is in my top five serial killers that I would just love to beat the shit out of. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah fair <laughs> yeah he uh he's got that manson quality like you really just want to put it to him yeah um yeah i also on, on the flip side of that would i would put him as probably number two in terms of what actually scares me <laughs> like thinking about his case and what it would have been like to be in los angeles at that time he's pretty damn scary I mean, he. For, we're going to talk about it more, but for all intents and purposes, I mean, he is like he was groomed his whole life to be a serial killer, basically. Yeah, and and unlike a lot of cases where people really just go into depravity and some some really gross stuff, he is more the concept of <laughs> making so many common fears finally come true. The, the looking at back at the, the room when you're flipping the lights out or when you're, you know, going out to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you think you hear something or feel something weird in the room. And it's always irrational until this asshole started r- rampaging around Los Angeles because uh, frequently those thoughts for people were because he had snuck into the house in the middle of the night. Yeah, like when I'm checking the doors and the garage door for the second time before I go to bed, it's because of Richard Ramirez. Yeah, he is the proverbial boogeyman. Toddy, how do you feel about Richard Ramirez? Um, well, I just recently watched the Netflix documentary. I guess I was kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot about 
him and his cases, but I also thought he was, like, killed in the 80s. Um, so I guess I don't know much about after his capture. Um, but when I watched the Netflix documentary, um, I was doing laundry as well, and so I was just in the basement several times, but uh, when I was going to bed, I was a little suspicious that uh, Richard Ramirez might have been in my house. And also, uh, the noises outside my window was either a raccoon or the ghost of Richard Ramirez. So, I don't know. <laughs> or it's both. A great, it's a great doc series on Netflix. I'd highly recommend that. Yes. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was very familiar with his, with his case. I was aware of who he was. Uh, I think I had a very general understanding of, of what he was. But until I watched that Netflix documentary that came out this past year, I didn't know quite the depths of it. And by the end of it, I wish I could have been one of those people in that neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) when he got caught. I I didn't know. I don't know. We'll get into it more, but he's a very strange case. Yeah. Uh, I'll also add two other references. Um, American Horror Story did some pretty good treatment of Richard Ramirez in both uh, 1986 and what other season? 1984. 1984, yes, but whatever. <laughs> Did Hotel? Uh, yeah, I think Hotel pays a little tribute because I feel like Hotel had the serial killer showing up. 84 definitely used him a lot. Yeah, he was a major storyline in 84, and they did pretty good to tie in like his real life plus his pact with Satan. And it's it's I mean 84 is just a really good season, but it it, it gives hmm. Ramirez. And it's weird for American Horror Story to capitalize on a character that's already established so they don't have to bother writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, right then, into Vinny, their number one fan. <laughs> and then uh, my other my other movie reference. <laughs> so most people always remember, like, of us growing up, if you looked at any true crime book, it had Ramirez on trial, holding up his hand with the pentagram on it. And <laughs> it always catches me off guard when I watch Joe Dirt. And he says he went to a, a police uh, sketch artist to try it because he couldn't remember his mom and dad. So he tried to describe him. He's like, yeah, and I made these wanted posters and the sketch for my dad looked like Father Time. And the sketch for my mom just kind of looked like that Richard Ramirez Night Stalker guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I uh, did not expect Joe Dirt to be brought up tonight. This is why I do the podcast. <laughs> oh, it tickles me every time. Abner finds a way. There's <laughs> a way to get a hillbilly show on. I'll do it. I will say I didn't. I wasn't able to track down for this episode, but there was a 2002 Night Stalker movie that was actually what I remember pretty good because it also came right on top of all the Gacy's and and all those movies. And I want to say like Columbia or Sony put it out, maybe straight to video, but. Decent, and I was trying to find, um, uh, it looks like it was about two years ago, Lou Diamond Phillips playing the Night Stalker. Apparently Lifetime made that movie, and I don't have the Lifetime movie channel, so next time I visit Robert, I'll watch it. I am shocked (laughs) that you of all people don't have the Lifetime movie channel. I am as well. (laughs) Homophobes. (laughs) (laughs) I would say... I know your taste in movies, Todd. That's all I'm saying. Hey, um, out of all the their cases, horror game is, is on it. Probably the second most uh, read case for me. I, it's just one that's always interested me, uh, especially I like to go out to Los Angeles. And so um, I've read a really, really good book. I would put it 
only I'd probably met, say it's my second favorite by Philip Carlo on the Night Stalker. It is exhaustive. Uh, even the great documentary on Netflix doesn't fully cover a lot of what he does, uh, especially the fact that Ramirez was based out of the Cecil Hotel that Netflix then did a series on because mm-hmm. um, he was, you know, fencing, going to a fence with a lot of the stuff he was stealing. Um, and so the book really does an interesting narrative between the detectives and Ramirez operating. Um, so, yeah, this is a case that's always interested me. Um, I do want to mention, too, uh, at one point while driving around Los Angeles with a couple of friends late at night on the highways, as Ramirez did, I put on Night Prowler. Uh, and it was very creepy. Um, it's just my usual style of travel. Uh, let's also not forget to mention here that behind Kobe Bryant, your favorite hero is the detective, the main detective on this case. I thought you were just going to say the Night Stalker. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> not oh, to get God. weird. Yeah, no, that's, you're very true. Frank Salerno. Um, <laughs> it was really cool to see him get the spotlight on the Netflix yeah. um, documentary along with the other detective. But Frank Salerno should be known by any true crime enthusiast because he brought down spoiler alert the night stalker but also the hillside strangler um within this you know the same decade you know not that many years apart um did he help with uh, he's a rock star did he help with green river too yes yeah because every time he pops up on something i'm like frank salerno and carrie's like that every time i'm like i'm just hi man it's frank salerno yeah he uh he is the man now the lapd isn't always but he uh, no. um you know with the LA Sheriff's Department he's done some pretty incredible detective work i mean he's like a real life movie character yeah yes glad you pointed that out okay well shall we journey into the mad macabre world of richard ramirez Sure. Sure. Uh, Richard Ramirez was an American serial killer, serial rapist, kidnapper, pedophile, and burglar. Stand-up guy. Uh, His highly publicized home invasion and murder crime spree terrorized the residents of the greater Los Angeles area and uh, later on uh, a little bit in the San Francisco Bay area from June of 84 until August of 1985. Uh, Predominantly the summer of 85 is when the real chunk of this scary case takes place. Um, Ramirez was born in El Paso in 1960, the youngest of five children. Um, His youth was riddled with exposure to violence, uh, varying degrees of that. His dad was pretty abusive to him, Um, but he was close to his older cousin, Mike. Do anybody familiar (laughs) with this case knows? uh, Big problem. Cousin Mike was. Yes, Cousin Mike was a Green Beret. He had served in Vietnam and didn't understand, I guess, the line on what you should be sharing with a preteen. They would spend time uh, smoking pot together and kind of pouring over uh, Cousin Mike's experiences in Vietnam that included a whole lot of rape and a whole lot of violence, including uh, showing Polaroids to Richard. Um, of beheaded women that he had sexually assaulted first and then killed. Um, and again, we're talking, you know, like 10, 11, 12 years old. He's sharing this stuff with this kid. Um, 
And really the turning point, I think, I mean, there's stuff that they, they trace back on Ramirez where, you know, he had head injuries and some of that trifecta that they jump into um, with serial killers in the making. But something that always stuck with me about this case and, and his upbringing was at 13 cousin Mike shot his wife in the face in front of Richard during a domestic dispute, uh, shot and killed her. Um, and justice was certainly not served with cousin Mike, who spent, I think, four years in an institution because he was ruled insane. Um, and Richard had really bonded with him prior to this. So he kind of continued to become more and more removed um, and depressed after that. Uh, began spending a lot of time uh, staying the night in cemeteries, I think, to get away from his uh, dad, an unhappy situation at home. Um, developing I think, uh, a... I'll jump in real quick and say that that this is kind of an idea, too, for where his earliest... Um, just what would mold him into a rapist came into effect was through his, you know, his cousin Mike telling him about Vietnam and the things that he had done there and just kind of painting for him like this image that if you want sex, you take it. Right. Yeah. It's, very true. It's not like a consensual love thing. It's like, no, no, no. When you want to get laid, you just assault people for that. And yeah. So, and I'm, you know, I'm glad you mentioned early that. impression onto him. Yeah. And what's equally important that I didn't mention that goes hand in hand with that was he, showed him a lot of killing techniques and stealth techniques, which later on, you know, we're looking at the case of a guy who's sneaking into people's homes and killing them in the middle of the night. I don't think that's any coincidence that old cousin Mike helped contribute to this legacy. Um, but while he's kind of spending more and more time on his own, he's getting into heavier drugs, LSD usage, um, and really, you know, as previously mentioned, he's starting to marry the idea of violence with sex, which is always problematic. Uh, Ted Bundy always courageously blamed that on crime comics. Uh, but, you know, it's that same kind of thing that for most of us doesn't occur. <laughs> you know, violence doesn't go hand in hand with sex. But I think pretty early on with him, his exposure to these things started to really warp that idea. Um, in high school, uh, he began working at a Holiday Inn. He also dropped out in ninth grade. Um, but he really started to develop the habits there, um, robbing patrons, sleeping in their room. And at one point, um, tried to rape a woman in her room because her husband had left. And he was trying to accomplish that um, during the time that he was out of the room. That didn't go well. The husband came back and beat the dog shit out of him, uh, beat him unconscious. And hey. the only the only reason he wasn't charged was because the couple was out of state. They didn't want to come back to, to live through testifying and dealing with this. Um, so, you know, that frequently happens with these cases. There's different reasons why people stay off the radar. And that is the most massive one, uh, I think, for Ramirez, because I think that would have helped speed up the process of him kind of, you know, being in the net. Uh, of results when they're looking for people later on but it's understandable i'm not going to shame people for not wanting to come back and testify against that uh but yeah he dropped out at ninth grade and at age 22 moved out to california anybody uh, got some stuff prior to that we want to discuss one other one too along with cousin mike is that i had heard that his aunt had a boyfriend who liked being a peeping tom 
Yes. He would take Richard with him on some of these jaunts, which also, not only did he learn stealth and killing from Cousin Mike, but he also learns how to be a successful peeping Tom from his aunt's boyfriend, which would just add to his his repertoire for his notorious acts. If only one of these people would have taken the time to teach him how to brush his teeth. (laughs) Here's the thing. Maybe dad should take a break from beating the shit out of him and pay attention to the fact that uncles and Taylor are taking him to spy on women in their homes or that cousin Mike's showing him decapitated Polaroids. Just, I'm no parent, but just some, just some thoughts. <laughs> and, and I wanted to revisit real quickly, as you said, his head injuries in youth and you had mentioned in passing the trifecta for our listeners at home. Um, there's, there's this, kind of checklist for serial killers. And usually the earliest list is early head trauma, wetting the bed, setting fires and torturing animals comes in there too. So I can't remember what the official three is, but those are the big four. I have three of the four. (laughs) (laughs) Not saying which ones. I'll sleep well tonight. (laughs) I would never hurt an animal. (laughs) So yeah, that's that's. Were you, were you going to bring up his teeth later? I know Vinny just mentioned it. I was going. Uh, I just thought like Dahmer. You know, Dahmer could have almost been a doctor with different upbringing. Maybe Ramirez wouldn't have killed people if he would have knew a dentist. <laughs> Maybe they wouldn't have caught him if he didn't need a dentist. He had horrible teeth. I mean, the man just had awful, awful teeth. <clears throat> Terrible halitosis. He was disgusting, but. In his defense, his hair was perfect. <laughs> his heavenly locks that he had to, to balance out all his evil Satanness. <laughs> well, that is the perfect segue into the killing. So let's jump in, <laughs> shall we? Um, so there is one um, situation which I'm not going to go into. People can look it up if they want. Uh, it's a, the uh, the attack and rape and murder of a child, nine year old, but that man. wasn't known until 2009 from DNA evidence. They also believed with that from DNA that there was a second person there, um, but that there wasn't enough evidence to go after them. And they were probably a minor at the time, um, but it doesn't really play into the case in the terms of the way we're approaching it with the detective uh, angle on it and what starts to add up. So we'll start with uh, the first one on June 28, 1984. 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park in Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed. Her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. And so when you look at this case, I think something that's different with him is that the pattern is very bizarre because that happens in June. Uh, Another important one isn't till March of 85. And so you look at how spaced out this stuff is, as he's getting into what he's getting into. And then here shortly it explodes. It becomes constant um, with, with stuff being, uh, at times, consecutive nights back-to-back with things, and then other times every couple weeks. Um, so he, uh, unlike a lot of these guys, they always had a particular routine that was usually modeled around not only what 
they were looking to get out of it, but also how to not get caught. Whereas his is pretty unorganized. Um, he was pretty stupid to be perfectly honest. No other way to describe it. Um, but in March, uh, on March 17th, 1985, Ramirez attacked 22 year old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she had pulled into her garage. Uh, when we get to the movie, uh, that we're covering for this. That's where it opens, yeah. uh, which I think is kind of an important point. Yeah. Um, but she survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect herself. Uh, and then inside the house, her roommate, Dale, uh, age 34, heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter. And when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen, when she raised her head to see again, he shot her once in the forehead, killing her. So I always found that particularly chilling to think, you see this crazy bastard is here. He's, you heard the gunshot and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be hiding in silence, knowing he's in the room with you and you finally work up the courage to try and, and look up a little bit. And, you know, um, but also important with this incident, uh, while he's fleeing an ACDC hat falls off of him is left at the scene. Uh, this becomes very, very important for the detectives and has never really been fleshed out in documentary or film in the way that it is in Carlo's book. And I imagine that's because of rights and people just don't want to drop the money to have ACDC or ACDC won't uh, be willing to let their music be associated with it. Um, but it's something I do want to make sure we, we cover in this because I think it's a, a fascinating aspect of it. But that same night, within an hour of the home invasion, Ramirez pulled a 30-year-old woman out of her car in Monterey Park, shot her twice, the 22 caliber handgun, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Uh, the, two, uh, the two murders and the attempted third in a single day attracted the extensive coverage uh, from the media that would not let up from that point on. They dubbed him early on uh, the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. He was described as curly-haired with bulging eyes and wide-spaced, rotting teeth. And I think uh, last podcast on the left made sure to mention that they described him as smelling like wet weather, which yeah. has always stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's where the, the fear starts to set in. The, the coverage starts to, to become a little bit more heightened. Um, and he paid attention to that stuff. And I I don't think it's a coincidence that things ramped up the minute the news coverage did. Um, on March 27th, which was just 10 days later, um, and this is where I think his MO really starts to, to take form. Um, Ramirez entered a home that he had burglarized a year earlier, just outside of Whittier, California, at approximately 2 a.m., and he killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, who was age 64, with a gunshot to his head from, I assume, the same 22 caliber handgun. And then his wife, Maxine, age 44, was awakened by the gunshot. Ramirez beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked the home, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded. Uh, the infuriated Ramirez shot her three times and then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by stabbing her several times, gouging out her eyes and placing them in a jewelry box, which he left with. The autopsy determined that the mutilations were post-mortem and the bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. Uh, Ramirez left footprints from a pair of avia sneakers there in the flower beds. 
uh, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Uh, bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and that's where the police really determined uh, that they had a serial killer on their hands. And so another reason that this case has always been so interesting to me is the detective work um, and just the bizarre ways that they they got to where they got, one of them being Avia sneakers. Um, that the fact the size that he had was so limited in that region of the country that I mean it helped uh, move the case along until you know the mayor of San Francisco didn't help things with that. Um, Diane but, Feinstein never helps anything. Yeah. So um, yeah, th- that's really his mo though is to go in in the middle of the night. People are asleep or unsuspecting at least that time of night um, and take out the guy, take out the male, the person who would pose the threat. Um, you know, I, I guess he learned from getting the absolute hell beat out of him at his job when he was younger. Uh, but that happens very frequently when we've got a couple that he's attacking. He goes after the guy, um, either subduing them or killing them. First thing uh, thought so far, pretty chilling stuff. Yeah, well, one thing I will add, too, is this idea of while there's good detective work, there's pretty uh, shitty police work and the idea that, you know, this we've talked about this before on other episodes where there were just like kind of these petty rivalries between precincts and that they wouldn't share information. And so they they could have got their shit together quicker if they would have been talking, but you know, of course, no one ever wants to acknowledge that there could be a serial killer, right? And so the fact right. that even talking about the similarities makes it even that harder to put together that quick. But they, they want to be the heroes. They want to be the one to catch the guy. And so they don't share information with other departments. I think, yeah. I think with Ramirez, though, I mean, because, again, until I guess I didn't know all the child abductions until the documentary either. Um but I feel like he is a lot of randomness, and I think that had to that had to throw you off, unless you, uh, you know, I guess the footprint was kind of where they started connecting some of it. But uh, you know, I feel like he didn't really have that much of a pattern, which is why it kind of made him scarier too, because um, you know he didn't he didn't really profile a certain type of person, or which is odd for a serial killer. Yeah, they're, they're, they typically kill within their own race. They typically go after uh, one one sex. Uh, it's usually either adults or children. Not typically, because I mean, we're talking. How old did you say the first victim was? Elderly. Yeah. And then you go all the way down the spectrum to little kids asleep in their beds, stolen out of their houses and brought back after he was done with them. This guy, and, and that's what that I think that is what's so odd is that the chaotic nature. It, it doesn't. It, it almost doesn't feel like illness because it's not a pattern. It just feels more like pure evil. Sure. And I can't imagine the terror living in that area at that time. Once the media gets a hold of this. Oh yeah. And he was so brazen because he really thought that he had satanic powers protecting him. And that's, 
That's a, no disrespect to our, our our listeners who are members of the Church of Satan or the Temple of Satan or the Satanic Temple. Like he, th- I mean, he was he was not a Satanist. He was a devil worshiper. You know what I mean? Like two different things there. And he really thought that he was under the protection of the devil. He was a fucking crazy person. Which which was also again, if we think about the time, it was during Satanic Panic. Absolutely, so that didn't help. And then I don't know, like a. I, it's weird to think about it, but um, if this would have just been maybe 20 years later, we might have only one murder. Like I always think about like the OJ crime scene. If that would have just been a few years later and all the stuff that they have now, how, you know, they probably could have got everything from a speck of blood. So, yeah. Well, and that too, to say like, yes, he was varied in his victims, but any eyewitnesses that were still alive, we're giving the same description. Yes. Bad looking guy. His hair was perfect, as I already said. And awful teeth, right? And so they at least had that to go off of, but they weren't sharing that with each other. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you could take somebody like Ted Bundy. You know why he was doing what he did. I mean, besides the fact that he was fucking crazy. But he, you know was sexually driven. He got off on violence. Whereas the difference with Ramirez and what I think is so chilling about him is he was like having a wild animal loose in the middle of the night in your city because there wasn't a particular thing driving him. He just dabbled in wherever the wind took him. The houses were random. The cars he stole were random. The victims were random. And what he did to them was random. He would rape some. He would not rape others. He would kill some and not kill others. He would rob some and not others disabled people children like nothing was off limits and so i think that's what i've always found so scary about him is while ted bundy would put his arm in a cast to disarm you this guy would just wait till you're asleep there was no routine he'd just wait till you go to bed and that's when you're the most vulnerable and so random that like um uh, the first victim from the movie. Remind me, Professor, what was her name? Uh, the one you just mentioned. Oh, I'd have to look. Uh, 22-year-old Maria Hernandez was the one that survived. Yeah, and, and she's the one that when he came back out, he put the gun in her face again and said, please don't shoot me. And he was like, okay. <laughs> like, Yeah, he, it's a lethal combo, dumb and mean. Lethal combo of dumb and mean. Right. Like, he didn't shoot her because she said, don't shoot me. He just was feeling spry that night. But then all these other accounts, too, eyewitnesses that lived to tell, anytime someone would, like, try to say no or stop, and he'd say, shut up, bitch. Right. Later, be part of his police lineup. Freddy Krueger fan. So, from there... There's another incident on May 14th, 1985. Uh, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park where he again did the routine um, at the home of Bill Doy, age 66, and his disabled wife. Um, he surprised him in the bedroom, shot the husband in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol uh, as Doy went for his own handgun. And after beating the mortally wounded man into an unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, then raped her after he had ransacked the home for valuables and the husband died of injuries while in the hospital. So we got him going after a disabled woman, um, 56 years old, killing a 66 year old man. 
Um, and to me, the worst uh, incident, I mean, everything he did was horrible, but this one always stuck with me and bothered me. Um, on the night of May 29th, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monrovia and stopped at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, age 83, and her disabled sister, Florence Nettie Lang, age 81. Finding Hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electrical cord to shock the woman. After raping Lang, he used Bell's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thigh, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. The women were found two days later alive, but comatose Bell later died of her injuries. Um, so we've got him attacking two women in their 80s, one of them disabled. Um, just an animal. And so through the summer, these crimes would continue to happen uh, more and more frequently. And this was a very, very hot summer. Um, and so you have people sleeping with their windows open because it's scorching hot all summer long. So uh, I got to the point where people were being told not to do that. And so I got a whole city just crippled with fear because that's the point of all this is you can own all the guns in the world. You can be an, you know, an ass kicking specialist. If you're asleep, you're asleep and you can do everything you can to prepare for that. And it may work, but it might not because that's the, that's the vulnerable state. That's what I've always found um, just so scary about this. Uh, anything before we start to get into his downfall? Nothing for me. No, I'm pretty square on this. Okay. So on August 8th, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California. He chose the home of Sakina Abawith, age 27, and her husband, Elias, age 31. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping husband with a shot to the head from a 25 caliber handgun. He handcuffed and beat the wife while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family's jewelry and then brutally raped her. He repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan and that she would not scream during his assaults. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then you could continue to rape the woman. And after Ramirez left the home, she untied the son and sent him to the neighbors for help. Ramirez, who had been following the media coverage of his crimes, left Los Angeles and headed to San Francisco. On August 18, 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. That's right. His name is Peter Pan. Um, he shot the sleeping Peter, age 66, in the temple, and then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, age 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase, Jack the Knife. So he's reaching at this point. He's relishing the attention. Um, on the bedroom wall, Ramirez again left a shoe print at the scene that detectives discovered and matched to a specific Avia shoe. And upon the discovery of the make and U.S. distribution of Ramirez's shoes, it was found that only six of them existed in the size 11 and a half. With five of them shipped to Arizona, it was evident that the one pair of its size and kind belonged to Richard. When it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the L.A. crime scenes matched the Pan crime scene, San Francisco's then-mayor Diane Feinstein divulged the information, including the gun caliber, in a televised press conference. Uh, this leak infuriated the de detectives in the case, as they knew the killer would be following the coverage, which gave him an opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his avia sneakers over the size of the Golden Gate Bridge that night, 
He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to the Los Angeles area. On August 24th, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission. Uh, that night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosarita. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote that down weird. Uh, beach in Mexico. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate number. Romero contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. After this encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, and his fiancée, Inez, age 29, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened him when he cocked his twenty-five caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told her that he was the night stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan again that there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the night stalker was here. So, settle there. Uh, Erickson untied herself and went to a neighbor's house to get help for a severely injured fiancé. Surgeons removed two of the bullets from his head, and he survived the injuries. So we now have ID made on this scumbag um, from multiple people. Did he leave her Erickson, a signed 8x10 as well? Yeah, no shit. So Erickson did give a detailed description of the assailant to the investigators, and police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint for the Romero house. Stolen car was found abandoned on August 28th in the Wilshire Center, Los Angeles. The police obtained a single footprint from the rear view uh, fingerprint, sorry, from the rearview mirror. Uh, despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car with of the prints, the print was positively identified as belonging to him, who is described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas. The long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. And something that is constantly overlooked with this case is this is the first time a fingerprint database was used. This is where they were using in a computer it to scan through these prints uh, you know, however many per second versus the old school way of just physically matching up prints. Um, so it was a big deal with that. Um, on the 29th of August, 1985, law enforcement officials decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez from a 1984 arrest for auto theft, release this to the media, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. On August 30th, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across America. And this is uh, where we get into the greatest capture in true crime history. Um, after failing to meet his brother, he returned to L.A. early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus and into a convenience store there in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, the killer, Ramirez saw his face on the front pages of the newspaper rack and fled the store in a panic. After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack a woman, but was chased away by ban uh, bystanders who pursued him. After hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom had struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit. The group held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat the shit out of him until the police arrived and took him into custody. Now, how's that for a capture? 
<laughs> the, how um, about when go the police got there, what Ramirez did, where he's begging the police <laughs> to take him because he's getting yeah. the absolute fuck beat out of him by a mob. They're like, they're like, and who are you? He's like, I'm Richard fucking Ramirez. Get me out of here. <laughs> so I'm the one that raped kids and disabled people and killed people. Help me. Um, it's funny so, how it's funny how when the tables are turned, he becomes a soft bitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not surprising the guy that has to sneak in the middle of the night and shoot the guy first. He wasn't looking for a fight. A little soft baby. Um. So I won't go into great detail on the trial other than just the fact that it was incredibly lengthy and publicized. Um, it cost the residents of California the most at the time um, in taxpayer dollars for the trial. I think it was, let me look here. Yeah, the trial cost $1.8 million. That's uh, $3.71 million in 2019. Uh, it was the single most expensive case at that point, even surpassing the Manson trial. And would be surpassed uh, not too long after by the O.J. Simpson case. Um, you, but he was convicted. Oh, go ahead. Oh, do you have any, do you have the numbers for how many potential jurors they had to go through? No, there it was something obscene. It was something like thirty thousand potential jurors they had to go through because everyone knew about it and everyone right. Yes, they were like, where I don't know how they managed. Someone? It was lived in a, a cave long enough. Right. Um, and I think on September. Jury, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think the jury was uh, six Hispanic, six African American, so that they at least tried to give him a jury of his peers, um, not just twelve white people who would be just chomping at the bit to hang the guy. The, the one yeah. they do that, <laughs> right? Thank God he didn't represent himself. <laughs> um, on September twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, he was convicted of all charges: thirteen counts of murder, five attempted murders, eleven sexual assaults, and fourteen burglaries. There's more than that, but that's that's what went through the case. Um, during the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. He stated to reporters after the death sentence is a big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lipoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California on June 7th, 2013. He had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. At 53 years old, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. By some estimates, he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeals process. So I don't know what the dollar amount is if you factor in the appeals and what taxpayer dollars went to that combined with the original case. Can we talk that about, is the case of Richard Ramirez. Can we talk about how after they got this fucking monster and we just went through the list of all the things he was convicted of, how women then started throwing themselves at him. This man who was known for stinking like wet leather and rotten fucking teeth suddenly becomes a man that women are throwing their panties at while he's on trial for murder and rape and child rape. What the fuck? I think that that was something tough in the documentary was family members sitting next to those idiots in court where... Especially the the grandma, like the the one where the I guess the daughter found her mom. I think it was the one, one just disgusting. Right? And yeah, so and this granddaughter sitting there having to see these idiots 
like throwing themselves at him. I just wanted to give Robert a chance to say you like what you like, but I guess that's inappropriate. Right <laughs> um, also, how this guy just done, you know, it, it'd be one thing if he, you know, one to two people is bad enough, but he does this long list and terrifies the community, and he's captured in 1985, and he's finally convicted in 1989. Like, what the fuck took so long? And then that's why a lot of people in LA, I knew he was on death row, but that's what, when, when I watched the documentary and it said that he basically died of like lung cancer, 2013. What? Yeah. We were at uh, our friend Sean's bachelor party when we went camping. And I remember seeing the news for it. I was like, Jesus, you just now died. Yeah. I didn't realize it was so late. And, uh, and quite frankly, a better end than he deserved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to another podcast. And they're like, you know, cancer is too good for some people. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, isn't that what uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. just died of? I think so. Yep. So you know, hey, murder your whole family, and uh, so so by the time Ramirez was on trial, had uh, had the tax dollars paid to get his teeth fixed? Is that what happened? Because his uh, teeth didn't appear to be rancid. <laughs> during all that footage that you end up seeing in the documentaries. I don't know. If he was around Gen Pop and was known for raping children, he might have got those knocked out during copulation. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I Because, I, like, to be honest, and that's probably how he, you know, like, he's not really like Bundy, where Bundy like, was like a spider where he'd get you in his web. Um, but he's an attractive guy until he smiles. Um, and I think that's if you. I always notice when that he does uh, and footage of him, he kind of keeps his mouth shut a lot of times. Like it's sad to say, but a lot of people in town that I grew up with that have the meth mouth, they do the same thing. <laughs> I notice that you know I'm like, oh, they they look pretty good, I guess, and then they smile and they got one tooth. Uh, <laughs> but typically, those kind of people, you know, they're not always showing showing their teeth or lack thereof. Todd, instead of wet leather, do you think that maybe Ramirez smelled like dirt? You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke, folks. Begin to meet us at the bar, and we'll tell you about that one. Uh, I'm going to on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Woo. Oh, man, I hate him so much. Oh, I just hate him. I just hate him. I, You know, I, I'll, I'll be real to you, like, uh, 1984 American Horror Story. Uh, they kind of, at first, they were kind of glorifying him to like, like he's a superhero. But uh, I think it kind of added to the show though, because that's obviously not where they they took it down. But that when it first started, that's because um, not only that, but uh, of course, like we all know, he didn't go to summer camp. And um, but I don't know. Actually, by the time he his fate on the show, I I, I kind of liked what they did with it. But. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I don't know. It's a lot of the serial killers. It, it's kind of um, I'm always interested, but it is tough on some of the stuff they put out there because sometimes they do make it like they're like a rock star, and then the victims are not even thought of, which is sad. Because a lot of the, um, at least Night Stalker, it seemed like most of his victims people cared about them. Where again, like Jeffrey Dahmer, um, the one we just covered with. Um, the one in Alaska, um, you know, that was largely sex workers. 
Yeah, nobody cared about those victims. Yeah. So that's the one uh, the Grizz called Roger Hampton. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Hanson. That's it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's I don't know. Just still, some of these are tough to watch. I think that's why the documentary on Netflix stood out so well. And honestly, the the TV movie was pretty well done. Because um, again, some of some of this stuff. Um, I've still never brought myself to watch, but even looking in the video store in the 2000s where they had, um, was it uh, Gein versus Gacy? <laughs> like the fact that they, like that came out like after Freddy versus Jason. You know, th- those are people that killed real people. Like, I don't know. That's yeah, I'm not, lowest I'm not a common fan of denominator. that kind of shit. Yeah. It's garbage. Yeah. Um, yeah, so before we move into the movie, I do want to mention uh, his love for heavy metal uh, because I just think it's an interesting a- aspect of the case because um, I want to say the same year is when Tipper Gore was having these Senate hearings a little bit later that year after he was apprehended. Now, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, um, but to circle back around to what I mentioned in the book, um, when they had him, after he'd been captured and had the shit beat out of him and he's sitting in um, the, the, the interrogation room, they hear him through the mic singing, humming ACDC. Well, these detectives had listened to their whole catalog after that hat was found, uh, just trying to search for anything to connect to this. And so I've always thought that would be such a cinematic moment if you were making a movie on this to have him humming that, cause that must've been chilling to hear from the detectives who only knew this music because of his hat being left at the scene. Uh, but he would drive around Los Angeles, um, listening mainly to ACDC and Judas priest. And the song that is attached to this, which I will play on the way out of this episode, if you want to stick around and listen to it is night prowler. Now this was released years before his small garbage began but I did want to read just this little chunk of lyrics to give you a feel for it. This is the shit he was driving around listening to. Too scared to turn your light out because there's something on your mind. Was that a noise outside the window? Was that shadow on the blind? As you lie there naked like a body in a tomb, suspended animation as I slip into your room. I'm your night prowler, asleep in the day. Yeah, I'm the night prowler. Get out of my way. Look out for the night prowler. Watch out tonight. Yes, I'm the night prowler when you turn out the light. And so this is the song I listen to driving around on the highways of Los Angeles after midnight, and it's scary as shit. <laughs> can, we, uh, can we get you to repeat that, but sing it in the style of Bee Gees? Ooh, no, I've been working on Bon Scott all morning. I'm not switching it up. <laughs> um. Can you imagine how mad Richard Ramirez must have been when he forgot his ACDC hat at the crime scene? Oh, yeah, especially when you're a stupid dirt who has almost nothing to your name. You left your goddamn ACDC hat. And this, you know, this wasn't the age of eBay where you could just hop online and get another (laughs) ACDC. No. It's like he goes back to his shitty room at the Cecil, the flop house in downtown L.A. with nothing. His ACDC hat's gone loser like that nerd you know yeah we and so we we kind of patched around that a little bit you know this idea that he had to stay at the cecil hotel adding further that to the the mystique of that hotel and it's just morbid past so yeah 
at one point he allegedly returned covered in blood and that didn't get it the cops called on him just walked right through in front of some people that were staying there staff and went up to his room i mean that's how bad this place was and he stayed there pretty much through all of this and he would it was like you know a hub for him he would go out and hit the the highway systems around la todd's ridden around it with me you you know it it just weaves all over the place and so he just picked different neighborhoods at different times at random but it was all out of the cecil which has this very macabre history so i haven't had a chance to watch the netflix series on the cecil i don't know if they go into much detail on him they do cover him a little bit a little bit not much which I think they would have done in his series to sell you more on watching the Cecil one, but right, there, there is a like Discovery Plus just started like their channel, which actually has mm-hmm. uh, I think one where they go in Amityville too, but um, they have one where they're covering the Cecil. So I don't know, I haven't checked it out yet, but we watched the one episode of the Netflix one here. I don't know. This COVID thing has changed me because I was like, I got to go to bed now. I'm terrified. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, Robert and I grew up around a kid that didn't like to be called Cecil. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, man. You just broke up my train of thought. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, so the Cecil Hotel, also famous because like it was a, an interesting place to stay because on one side of it was a good side of L.A., on the other side was Skid Row. And so you never knew what you were going to get staying there. And so Ramirez spent a lot of time on Skid Row, and that's why he would spend nights at the Cecil because if you watch the documentary, it talks about its, its, its rise and fall and rise just from its status. So it's pretty interesting. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it before we move into the movie is uh, one time while driving around uh, downtown LA before I went to a Lakers game, we were uh, in, we got an Uber to go to the last bookstore down there. And uh, while riding around with the Uber driver, this tiny young girl, I wouldn't quit talking about the Cecil because I knew it was nearby and I could see that it visibly made her uncomfortable. So I dropped it. <laughs> You're like, Hey, you want to go hang out at the Cecil? I got a room at the Cecil. <laughs> yeah, it's like maybe if the Netflix documentary existed at that point, it would have made her less uncomfortable. But this was uh, just my usual weird bullshit to a stranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I could go on about the Cecil for a while, but I'm not going to. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so <clears throat> let's 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 get into the movie here. Um, anybody got nah. details? I do okay, so. Manhunt, is it the search for the Night Stalker, um, also known as just the um, search for, is it Hunt for the Night Stalker actually was the video release. Because I looked it up and I remember the box art. I never watched the movie and I didn't realize that that, that's what this movie was. But um, I think that came out in the early 90s. But this was a TV movie that premiered in 1989. Directed by Bruce, Bruce Seth Green, written by Joseph Gunn, and starring Richard Jordan, A. Martinez. Um, and that's his name. That's not Todd being racist. <laughs> yeah, it's not just A. Martinez. That's his name. And he's a great actor. He um, he also pops up in Longmire. He's got a great role in the movie. I was going to say, both, show Longmire. both of the leads are in a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, I'm not sure if it's Gary or Jerry, because 
spelled with a G. So um, we'll go with Gary <laughs> Gary Bamman, Gary, uh, Gary Gergich, who's also in a lot of stuff, and then Gregory Cruz playing Richard Ramirez. And I'm not. Yeah, sure. Jordan plays a serial killer um, in the mean season, so it's a fun clip Jordan? for him. Yes, yes, that is correct. I am uh, oh. not really positive uh, what this premiered on. And then I was I was thinking that uh, I was trying to place who Jordan was exactly, but apparently he died a couple years after this movie came out too. So I believe that was an uh, NBC movie, okay. if I'm not mistaken. It kind of feels like NBC. But Jordan had a great role in Gettysburg as he was dying. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think he was supposed to be in The Fugitive, and and he was pretty sick at the time and didn't didn't live much longer. Which for the great listeners, actor. if you if you would like to check this out, we watched this on YouTube. I believe all yes. of us did. I watched and it on the, Amazon Prime. Oh, I've got a bootleg of it. And the version that I watched on YouTube had all of the commercials in it. I opted to watch the one with the original oh, commercials nice. in it. Yeah. I saw Which that. Was kind of I, was like, I was in like a crunch for time, and I was like, ooh, it'd be fun to watch with the commercials, but I didn't. And the only thing about it, though, uh, it, they're lost, they're, I think it's Los Angeles area, area commercials, so you don't get a lot of local commercials which is one of my favorite things for things back in the 80s is to get local commercials but it was mostly just national chains like burger king and things like that was there a five for five <laughs> no but it, no but it was i try to remember it was like big king doubles or something there was like several different kinds that was advertised a lot during this would have been nice to see some elvira mm-hmm. <laughs> um the first thing I find hilarious, if I can, real quick, is the actor that they got to play. Uh, is it is it Gil? Is that the other detective's name? Uh, compared to what Gil really looks like, compared to the actor that they got to yeah. play, was hilarious. A little bit more chiseled. Yeah. Also, his wife is Julie Carmen from like In the Mouth of Madness and Bright Night Two. It's like an ultimate babe. Uh, and uh, what what's the the main detective's name? Frank Salerno. The one that Robert yells his name all the time. Frank Salerno! Yeah, Frank Salerno. <laughs> uh, the woman playing his wife looks like she's being played by Kristen Wiig. Anyway, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I recognize the reporter as the friend from Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy. I just want to say off the top that this is a good movie, but it's not as good as some of the other made-for-TV true crime movies we've already watched. I I don't know. I like this one. I, I felt like because uh, it's 89. You know why? Why you don't like it as much? Because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. There, there's just not as many frills. And I think yeah, they, it felt it was a little more succinct, you know, because the other ones are much longer. They're, they were two-part series, whereas this was just a nice, tight 90 minutes. And normally I love a tight 90, but I feel like Maybe that's what bugged me is I'm like, well, we could have gone into a little more detail. Well, um, and it probably didn't help that you just watched an epic Netflix in-depth series. So it makes that TV movie seem pretty brief. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting. But it's really well done. Listeners, By all means. Sure. Where you go on. It's, it's really well done. I'd highly recommend it. Um, that, yeah. and it, it. It hits a nostalgia button for me, too, in that you don't really get those TV movie events anymore. 
So it's kind of a product of the time as well, and it kind of hits a nostalgia button. Well, and, you know, like a number of other ones that we've already covered and ones that we haven't, what make these excellent is having to be restrained. They aren't exploiting things, and so there's more of a focus on the narrative, the detective work, uh, that makes these better than you would ever dream of watching when turning on like a TV movie from 30, 40 years ago. But they hold up because of that restraint that they had to use to air on network television. And what's really interesting about this one is that they waited. They, it was still a relevant story, but they waited until the trial was done. So like when we covered The Deliberate Stranger, there's all kinds of shit wrong in it because it, the court case wasn't even done. They didn't even know things yet. And so they were going off of what they assumed or you know, believed had happened, but they didn't know. And so once they got him more into confession, so when you go back and watch The Deliberate Stranger now, it's, it's a really good movie, but it's also got some stuff wrong. It's not their fault. It was just made before they knew it. And so with this, it's accurate. It's one of the most accurate TV crime movies you're ever going to watch because they knew the case in and out at that point. Would you, would you say that you hate it when people assume something about a case? <laughs> yes. Uh, I was going to say the same thing. Like, um, Deliberate Stranger, I think they probably were shooting as they were arresting him. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like it. And, you know, again, and no fault of the movie. Um, where the, This one, um, I don't know. I, I hadn't seen this movie. Um, so kind of like toward the end, I almost thought they were going to downplay his capture because it kept showing the police chasing him instead of, you know, like the neighborhood going after him. And I thought, man, if they have a bunch of cops catch him, I'm going to be pissed. But um, it, it, again, like uh, it seemed like everything was pretty accurate. Um, There's probably a few things for filler and to make a movie that were thrown in. Obviously the, the, the hunky cop uh, who always seemed to get his shirt off where in real life we'd have been like, put, put that back on. Um, I think the only thing that, that hurt this movie was, I don't know if cool is the right word, but, um, I feel like the music was a little offbeat, like the, the, um, the like popular music, the score was actually really good. I thought, um, but like you didn't get all the songs were like probably made for this movie where it was just some unheard of band. Um, so there was no like popular music. I think that's the only thing it lagged. Um, I thought for a TV movie, the act, the actors were actually um, a step above as well. They weren't typically a bunch of like made for um, like, you know, that kind of like deal in the genre, which I think the I think the serial killer ones have always gotten lucky on the acting um, pool that they, they choose from because it's usually more like a more of like a theatrical run than like, you know, like daytime soap <clears throat> actors. So um and then I think another cool thing that, that they were probably as a probably as a filler, I don't know if movies would have went as far with the reporter, um, but since it's made for TV, because I think there's some stuff too, especially uh, as you know, people think of uh, reporters as just despicable people. Um, you know, the the reporter definitely said on some stuff that she didn't have to, where it probably could have furthered her career even more. Um, and then this one, there's even a scene about that where, where they basically want to get rid of her because they find out that she knew some, some key information that no one else knew. And then, like she said, you know, is it, would that have been worth the, the lives that probably would have, you know, 
not been saved by by setting on it. So, well, like when the detective says, "Your ratings, your conscience." <laughs> yep, and that stuff's all true. Yeah. Um, Salerno had learned the hard way with the Hillside Strangler, and so he had them as tight lipped as you could be. And so there were some members of the media that they did work with, but that understood the gravity of the situation and in rare, a rare turn backed off a little bit. They still did what they had to do for their jobs, but they didn't exploit and endanger people. They left that up to the mayor of San Francisco. (laughs) Right. Um, Also to piggyback on what Todd was saying about the music. I love that they, for some reason, could not get ACDC, so they had a fake Night Prowler song in the movie. Yeah, and I'll play that at the very end of the episode. ACDC was not pleased uh, with him, you know, kind of like the Beatles with Manson. They are like, this guy's batshit crazy. We wrote this song years before he had done what he did, and here's where it came from. He, he It's being taken out of context. Um yeah, I, I think that we'll never see the music used directly because of that. But it would be great for the cinematic value. Sure. Otherwise, I think the movie did a great job with the, the whole bit about the Avia shoes and with consulting or you know trying to catch up with a dentist uh, for that sort of stuff. So, I mean... It captures the heart of the case and and you know the the search, and it does that well. And especially his character yeah. at the end, it does that well. It's Which, real careful not to show the ways that the LAPD bumbled shit, though. Isn't that weird? Because mm-hmm. yeah. the LAPD, um, if we, if we want to get into the whole car situation, fucked fucked a few pooches there on the way. You talk about the print sitting in the car for God knows how long. Yes. That and that they pull him over and they're like, yeah, you kind of look like that guy, but you're not the guy, are you? And he's like, no, no. (laughs) Didn't think so. See ya. Oh, thank God. He he said he wouldn't, so. This would be really awkward if you were the guy. So thanks for clarifying for me that you're (laughs) the guy. Yeah, no, not me. No, I'm cool. Yeah. Something I think that's really interesting about the the TV movie is that they went the extra mile with accuracy when they didn't need to. Because I'll be honest, it doesn't add anything to the movie other than I kind of marvel at the fact that they did it when I'm watching. I'm like, this is right. It's so refreshing because you're not used to seeing it. So just to bookend it, the, the beginning of the movie, the girl's key saves her life. The way they shoot that is exactly how it happened. And... At the end, with the capture, the attempted carjackings, the hop, the hopping over fences, the routes, the section of Los Angeles they're filming in, that's all accurate. And they didn't need to do all that. They could have just showed him getting the hell beat out of him by a neighborhood group, and viewers would have been fine with that. But it's the fact that they really attempted to try and make an accurate movie, I think, is completely overlooked because this isn't something that was on my radar until a couple of years ago. I bought a this off a of bootleg table at a convention. It's like, oh, what's this? It's got Richard Jordan in it. Oh, I want to watch this. It turned out to be really good. And I think it's interesting, too, that they put their star power in the detectives, not the killer. Because it's usually the other way around. We usually have Brian Dennehy playing Gacy, Mark Harmon, and Ted Bundy. We put the stars and the detectives in this and focused on them for the story. Which, I just think there's a lot of breaks from the norm on 
on these types of TV movies from that era with this one. They could have had him running through the back lot of Mayberry, and I'm like, man, that's convincing. (laughs) (laughs) The only, uh, like, on IMDb, they always have those, like, uh, goofs or whatever, which, how do people catch this stuff? But this movie seriously has uh, two things. I forget what the first one is, but somebody pointed out that there's, like, a Chase Bank that you can see in two scenes in the movie, and they, they talk about how one is... Kind of like there's some mist over it, but if you know where it's at, and then toward the end, and then they go on to make a point that the reason why they're talking about it is that tower wasn't um, was built in 1989, not 1985 when it was taking place. And I was like, no one's gonna know this, so <laughs> or give a fuck. They're like, when they hold up a picture of the shoe print, that's actually a 12, <laughs> not 11 and a half. So it really took me out of the film. And then, uh, Actually, that's an A6. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, too, is because uh, they touch it uh, on the documentary and they touch on in this, because I think it's something that people either don't think about or forget about is the um, kind of the hell that the detectives go through. So, like, their family life and the neglect of their family. And for this case, I mean, he was hitting in their backyards. How terrified, you know, they're out during the night trying to find him leaving their family, you know, vulnerable to, uh, to this guy. So, um, you know, again, this touches on it, uh, too, like where again, the, the one wife leaves and, um, you know, to go stay with family cause she's just terrified to be alone at night. And, um, I think probably even the detectives, it's, to me, it's even more scary that the people that are, um, like the news reporter, they're probably so used to this kind of stuff. So the fact that again, there's a scene where, uh, the reporter, um, asked the, for the man to walk her to her car because she's scared, and um, and and the detectives were scared. So when um when it affects everybody that bad, it's you know I, I can't imagine living in LA during this time. So I was I was terrified in in twenty twenty one watching this on TV and hoping that uh you know. Richard Ramirez didn't live and was outside my window. So, yeah. Well, and you've met Steve's girlfriend, Jasmine. She grew up in East uh, LA, friend of the show. And I've asked her about that. And she, you know, says her, her family has much more vivid memories of being there through that in East Los Angeles uh, than she does. But it, it's, uh, I, I just can't imagine how scary it must have been. All right. Anything further to say about the case of the film? Uh, no, just for recommendations. I think if you've watched the Netflix series or you're going to on him, that this TV movie is a really e- very accessible and free way to uh, add a movie along with that. And if you want to read a book, read Philip Carlos. It's the best. Yeah, I mean, if you've stuck with us and our recommendations for uh, the made-for-TV serial killer stuff, this is uh, another must-watch. And you won't kill three hours doing it. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah, it's it's an easy watch. It's a, yeah, it's a short commitment. All right, we'll wrap it up. Another installment of True Crime here on the Midwest Monster Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner. And I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, who is inviting you to stick around for a little ACDC after this. Just lovely. It sounds rapey. Venomous Vinny. <laughs>
Hot toddy. And hey, friends, vaccinations have come around, and it won't be long until the crew rides in person again mm-hmm. on the soundboard with decent audio. It's coming. So stay tuned, stick around for the ACDC, and stay scary.
Derek Burns reports. ACDC. Are they mere musicians or accomplices as well? Some media reports have suggested that Richard Ramirez, the so-called Night Stalker, accused of murdering 15 people in California, was influenced by the ACDC song Night Prowler. I mean, you get it, your inspiration from something. In the case of that song, it's been completely taken out of context. The story come from, mainly there was a guy that used to steal underwear off people's laundry lines. And that inspired, well, it wasn't Brian that wrote the lyrics, it was a guy, Bon Scott, since dead. That inspired him to go out and write a song about that. That's what Night Prowler's about. That's what Night Prowler is about. Congress has been holding hearings recently on the subject of whether there should be warning labels on records whose lyrics are judged objectionable. A prime target for those who favor the labels? ACDC. ACDC. Some people say that stands for Antichrist Devil's Child. Does it? It came from the back of my sister's sewing machine. <laughs> sewing machine? Yeah. You know, it's on any electrical appliance. It's power. It just means power. Doesn't it frustrate you that uh, your lyrics have engendered all this controversy when, when, when you find they have perfectly innocent meanings? Well, in a way, I, you get a bit insulted in a way. I mean, because mainly it's, it's music. I mean, what stands left is the songs that you have written that have been good. This is what gets missed out entirely. People are just going for the voodoo side of it, you know. Their music, they say, is for kids. They say that kids don't misunderstand the relative innocence of it, and kids ought to pass that message along to those who think other.